This is Episode 7 of the Soul of Sensitivity Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed physician or mental health practitioner. I'm your host, Anna Holden, an intuitive, energy alchemist, Ayurvedic health educator, and yoga teacher, as well as the founder of Sensitivity Uncensored and the Sacred Rebellion. Each week on the podcast, I explore different aspects of living a soulful, sensitive life. I'll bring you stories of other sensitive, creative pioneers, as well as my own thoughts, teachings, and tools. This is not the beginner's guide to sensitivity, but rather the place for sensitive souls to gather up their courage and pioneer their way into a life of personal freedom and spiritual sovereignty. Your sensitivity is sacred. Are you ready to live that way? Hi there, it's Anna. Today on the podcast, I interview Annie Axford to share her story about leaving her conservative Mormon faith to find a spirituality that fed and honored her own needs. Within this story, we're exploring the possibility that some of the more conservative religions are not for everyone, particularly those of us who are highly sensitive. For those of you listening with conservative backgrounds, Please try to listen with a sensitive ear for the experience of someone who may have experienced your faith or a similar faith in a very different way. Our hope is that by bringing some of these issues out into the open where they can be discussed, we can forge stronger ways to connect to one another. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we are talking with Annie Axford, and Annie is a marriage and family therapist and the founder of Sensitive Leadership, which is at sensitiveleadership.com. And for those of you who have been listening um, here on the podcast or really been following my work for much time, you'll know that Annie's been a huge inspiration for my work ever since I've started and I've taken workshops from her and we've worked together on a couple of little things before. Um, And so you might think that I have Annie here to talk more about sensitive leadership and highly sensitive stuff because we love geeking out about that thing. And and I do want to talk a bit about sensitive leadership so you understand what it is. But today we have a much more personal, um, important, I think, and kind of juicier subject to talk about. Um, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But Annie, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your work at Sensitive Leadership. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here and excited for this conversation, especially because it's a conversation I've been having privately and in my head quite a bit. And, <laughs> and, and it's actually been, I would say, the most important thing I've been working on for the last five or six years, but not out loud. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that now that all of this anticipation is building. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'm not here. Why don't I spill the beans okay. a little bit, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, oh. Um, so, t- yeah, so today we're going to be talking about 
the important need for us highly sensitive people to claim a spiritual path that feeds our soul and the damage and trauma really that can come when we are forced into a belief system that doesn't serve us. And so Annie is sharing a very personal story about her history with this uh, and her um, movement from a belief system that has caused her some, some harm moving into a spiritual place that feels really empowering for her. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. And I do think sensitive leadership ties into this. And uh, so just as a little background, uh, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also a clinical hypnotherapist. And I've been doing that for about oof, 12, 13 years now. And, um, and then in 2009, I really, uh, um, well, I, I came across the work of Dr. Elaine Aaron, and a lot of things really came together for me at that point in um, the, the work I'd been doing about sensitivity that I didn't really know was about sensitivity, or I didn't have that word for it yet. And, um, and from there, I started um, my own practice and my own business working with this, and that led me to develop sensitive leadership, which is which comes from my background and my educational background and my studies of human development and works a lot with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, but turns it on its head in a lot of ways to show that highly sensitive people, in my experience, develop from the top down rather than the bottom up. And just as a brief explanation, you know, anybody is welcome to Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs and find lots of information about that. And you can also go to my website, sensitiveleadership.com and find out more about this process. But Maslow theorized that human beings meet their needs uh, starting at the physiological needs of food, clothing, and shelter. And then once they have those needs met, they can move up to safety needs of laws and rules and they and, the, and those only become important once they have those basic physiological needs met. And then from there, they can move on up to love and belonging needs and so on up until they get to their transcendence needs. And I have found that highly sensitive people with these highly sensitive bodies uh, are, have to start out with their transcendence needs because those are the most abundant, uh, that's the most abundant information to them is the transcendent. All of this information that the nervous system is picking up on and and learning how to channel that and direct that down to the physiological. So that's just a very brief overview, but I think especially how it lines up with what we're going to talk about today is that the ideas of spiritual practice and what that is and what spirit is and what spirituality is. And I think that culturally what I have found is that hardier people, which are who I reference as being the people who start out with the physiological and there's nothing wrong with that. I like to clarify that I have zero, I have many hardy people that I know and love. And, and so this is not a good or a bad thing um, that for people who are hardier working up to transcendence, whatever brings them up to transcendence can feel like a spiritual practice or process or um, understanding but for people who are highly sensitive, who are living in the transcendent and, and already there, a lot of those kinds of spiritual practices can become what I call spiritual masturbation, where it is just this cycle of spinning in the transcendent. There's no grounding. There's no embodiment of the transcendent information that this highly sensitive person has within them. 
And so it doesn't actually bring a sense of relief or fulfillment and instead creates more of a fix or a high or a buzz that keeps uh, this person actually more disembodied and more checked out from themselves. And so, um, and, and I, I just, the thing that's so helpful to me is that I'm such a practical thinker. I look at all of this so practically, there's no judgment on it. I'm not like, and that's bad and that's wrong. It's like, no, that's just the way it is in the same way that like oil and water separate, like oil's not bad. Water's not bad. That's, it's just the properties that they have. And so I think it helps to understand the properties and to know how to work with them in a, in a dynamic, um, you know, physical way. And so for me with my work with sensitive leadership, I've slowly been working through these different levels and different practices I've come up with. And I've only been recently more personally and publicly owning and working with the, the spiritual practice of coming down and grounding this, um, and what that looks like to have a spiritual practice as a highly sensitive person, because I think from my perspective, so many people my whole life have viewed me as a very spiritual person. And I, I would agree with that, but also I was just trying to get by. Like, those are the things that I was just <laughs> born with. Like, and yeah. so my experience of spirituality where other people might be like, oh, that's so deep or so I was like, I was still struggling and I was still like, I'm not finding relief in this. This isn't spiritual Mm -hmm. for me. I don't feel connected to everything through this. Mm -hmm. I feel disconnected. I feel disembodied. And I'm, and I feel like even the way in which I was put on a pedestal perpetuated that further. So, um, so now I, I feel like I'm really in sensitive leadership, looking more specifically at what is a spiritual practice for me personally and, and, and even how I might bring that forward into the work that I do more publicly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's beautiful. And I, I love how well you articulate that and, and use that kind of reversed Maslow's hierarchy of needs to describe that. Um, Cause that's what I found and that, you know, the, and for those of you who have worked with me, I've found that um, yeah, we're, we're up in that subtle realm all the time. And so those practices, uh, often spiritual practices that want to take us up and out to find some sort of transcendence can, can feel really backward to us. Um, or even feel, I, I know I like what you said about feeling like that high, you know, or, um, I would call it an an uncomfortable high to be. It's a way of kind of bypassing all of the human needs Mm -hmm. that we have. And and a lot of the traditions um, that I've used before, including like the chakra system and things like that, um, the spiritual practices that utilize those structures often really really focus on the up and out kind of that liberation channel or Mm -hmm. the transcendent channel. So moving from, you know, the, the first chakra, which similar to Maslow's right uh, represents those safety survival needs moving up towards spiritual things where there's, there's another channel within us that moves from top to down, right up to down connecting the chakras. And so what I found so helpful and what I love that you articulated here is that need for really taking spiritual information down and in and toward the body and, and actually making it more human and palpable and grounded. Yeah, definitely. And I think think that like, that was one thing that was so interesting to me personally coming from a very logical, 
um, you know, education in um, family and human development, psychology, and philosophy, and um, and and studying all of this, I remember saying, "This makes sense for other people." I I know that other people work this way; these theories of development, um, but I don't, and I don't know how I work, and I don't know what works for me. And growing up in a very conservative uh, religious environment of Mormonism also having that there. And then I remember when I first started to look at the chakras, like I was not at all familiar with them. It was not sure. something I was introduced to at all until I was in my twenties. And I remember being like, this isn't, I don't, this is gibberish. I don't, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> spinning balls of energy that are inside of me. Like, but so it was really interesting for me to start to be drawn to it still and to look at it more and to, and to line that up with Maslow and to line that up and see all of these parallels with the subtle and the dense and the physical and the cognitive and understanding that there is a way that they can all line up and work together. And it doesn't have to be a fight and it doesn't have to be you're right. I'm wrong. Chakras and Maslow, like, yeah. and they, they're, they can go together and yeah, so, yeah, it, it really can, you know, and I think that, um, I mean, I, Obviously, that's the work that I do. In the last, in, in in a podcast early on, I talked about how you know I was a scientist first. I came from a really similar academic uh, background, and I, I I don't see a conflict between science and spirituality. In fact, I see them being able to feed each other. Sure. So, I wanna I wanna um, talk a little bit about the background of the place where we grew up. So Annie and I actually grew up in the same a uh, small-ish town of Logan, Utah, which is about 80% um, Mormon or Latter-day Saint. Um, and we, we were friends um, in high school, although we went to different high schools, and we're in a group of really um, rather accepting friends. <laughs> um, I remember I was really happy to, I, I kind of dated into the group, which was a <laughs> fantastic way to get into to, to all of us. And we were a mixture of Mormon and non-Mormon friends and was one of the only friend groups um, that I had um, growing up that was a mixture that worked together really well. So, you know, setting the stage, so Logan, Utah and the surrounding areas are really, really high percentage of Mormons. Um, and I grew up in, in Utah as a non-Mormon. And my dad is a uh, very staunchly non-Mormon. Um, my mother grew up in a Mormon family and is the only one of nine children to leave the Mormon church. And so I've, growing up, I experienced this, um, this in-between place where we would go to, you know, to family reunions. And we were one of the, I think, sometimes more rare cases where my mother's family did not disown her in any way. Um, there's still some, uh, you know, a little bit of conflict kind of under the table there, but, but we were always really embraced within the family. Although whenever we showed up, there's this sense of like, okay, we need to kind of put away everything that we are and show up in a really specific way so that um, we're acceptable and we're accepted and we stay loved and, um, and, and we don't make mom uncomfortable because <laughs> our, 
because it was it was really challenging for my mom um, to be able to leave the Mormon church um, when she was in her early 20s and maintain that for herself. And so, um, and then for me, growing up non-Mormon, I had my own challenges, which I'll talk about at a later time. This is not about me, but it was always really interesting to me when people who had grown up in the faith were able to step away because watching my own mother's pain, and I was not alive when she stepped away, but seeing the continued um, kind of emotional toll that it took on her was really um, hard. And so I think that, um, you know, we've been in touch, Annie, but I think that I kind of, you know, as this actually happens, and I think Annie's gonna giggle because she'll know how this happens in, in, in Utah, is you kind of hear through the grapevine. <laughs> like somebody has kind of moved yeah. out, out of the faith and it comes through those, those of us who are probably outside of it and, and, more, and perhaps more open or accepting to that information. But Annie, I, I'd really like to, for you, um, if you don't mind, kind of starting in that beginning, what was it like for you, you know, as a child in the household that you grew up in? Um. Well, I had a really interesting environment. It's still interesting to me. Uh, I mean, and I'm sure we could all say this, families are weird, but... Um, yes. And how they function. Um, but I... So my parents, I would say they tend to be a little bit more earthy and hippie-ish in some ways. And so there was still kind of an open-mindedness in my family and even in my extended family. And that actually was something that came to be really difficult for me later because I always felt really close to my mother's side of the family. And I still am close to, but it's different. You know, as you said, with your mom, it's just different when you've been a part of this very specific social group uh, with agreed upon beliefs and specific ways to live. And then you leave what that does to your attachment and what that does emotionally. And um, so I think there is always something there when you were in it and then you're out. Um, yeah. Well, and Mormons, I mean, uh, for those, you know, for those listening who aren't so familiar with the, the Mormon faith, you know, this is, this is not just a group who just like goes to church for an hour on Sunday. Right. Can you explain a little bit more about? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, structure? Mormons are very specific and uh, vocal about believing they are the only true church and they think they are the only group that has an, all the truth and they think they have all the truth that they need. And, um, and of course, within that, there are people who interpret things differently and you'll have more or less open-minded people, people who are willing to question things more than others, people mm -hmm. who bend the rules. So there is a little bit of wiggle room there. Um, and a lot of Mormonism is based on your own personal account and decisions. And so there is accounting. There are things, you know, the, the, the Mormon churches are, are divided up into wards, which a ward is based on territory, the location in which you live. And the leader of that church is called a bishop. And so there is a lot of like reporting things to the bishop, talking to the bishop, sort of like confessional in the, as far as I understand with Catholicism, but different because it is, it serves a different purpose. And a lot of it is about um, 
maintaining a very specific standard of behavior and that standard of behavior is what allows you to participate within the culture and to be in good standing. And, mm. and when you're in Utah specifically, where you have, like you said, like 80% Mormon, it's not just in good standing at your church, it's within your community, within your family. And there is definitely a sense of like, how I look at this through the lens of someone who studied human development and is a therapist is, is attachment that we, you know, we all have a need for a sense of safety and consistency in our lives. And the way that we find that can come through lots of different avenues. But like for me within Mormonism, I saw, and I see this within any group like this that has mm -hmm. the same beliefs is that mm -hmm. it cuts through a lot of the work of attachment because it says, you believe this, I believe this too, we're cool. Like, and as long as we follow these rules, then I can trust you or there's an immediate in. And so you'll see this with, within lots of different groups. I mean, even within sports, like you'll say, oh, you're a Raiders fan? Me too. And I just pulled Raiders out of the air. I don't know anything about Raiders. <laughs> but that gives you a sense of something. And within Mormonism, it's even bigger. Like you can go to a different state or a different country and it's like, oh, you're Mormon? Okay. And there's an instant trust and attachment and in that um that is convenient in a lot of ways and really nice to just know to just have this sort of uh blueprint of where you stand with someone immediately rather than having to develop that over time and um and so yes and that you know church is three hours on sunday there's events during the week there's expectations of going to the temple the temple the prom you make promises at the temple that are very invested. You wear special underwear. You, um, I mean, it's, it's your whole life. It is like there it's, it, it's like Mormonism encompasses everything in your life. If you are a practicing active Mormon. Particularly, I mean, I, I would say then also then in a place where everyone else is a practicing Mormon, the thing that became really uncomfortable for me was the way that that faith really seeped into social and cultural yes. norms. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, I found my high school volleyball team kneeling down to pray before a match and, and using a very specific uh, Mormon uh, prayer. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, whoa, what? Like what? <laughs> you know, but I just became really used to it as like, okay, I live in Utah. This is part of the culture. I'm going to have to accept a part of it. And until I think it was um, my five-year class reunion was hosted at a um, church and, you know, they had everyone pray before the meal. And that's when I was like, oh, right, enough. Enough is through a line. Yeah. And I drew a line and gave some feedback and that like, I, I you know, I, I, I respect, appreciate faith, you know, absolutely. But not when it's, um, just blanketed over into events and structures that are clearly not um, religious um, without taking into consideration or being sensitive for those who may have a different faith, right? I, I think just piggybacking on what you just said, there's no way for like that many people to belong to the same organization and not have that bleed into politics and the social fabric and structure. And it was only for me after I left Utah and had been away for a while and then coming back that I was like, whoa, 
that I really saw how I knew, of course, that it was such a central part of Utah culture, but then just even the degree to which it was, was shocking to me. Like, like you said, coming back to a high school reunion and, and it was at our high school, but still that without question, they thought that we were going to pray at the beginning of it. And, mm-hmm. um, and also one of my good friends who's gay, um, they had invited him to sing. Uh, he's also a performer. He's a musician. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he used to sing at uh, assemblies in high school and they invited him to sing. And then they found out he'd come out as gay. And they specifically said, please don't sing anything about being gay. And whoa. this kind of stuff, I was like, whoa, it was a slap in the face of mm-hmm. that. They think that's more than like, even that it happened, that they think it's okay to expect that and they don't feel ashamed of asking that and they don't feel bad about that and i think that particular to mormonism and i'm i think this probably exists in lots of religious cultures but mormonism specifically mormons are brought up taught that they're persecuted that they are brought up with a story of mormonism and how it came to be with joseph smith being persecuted and the mormons being persecuted it was originated in upstate new york and how they traveled to Utah to be able to practice religion freely. And you're not taught about, you know, Joseph Smith taking, you know, 14 year old wives and like, oh, I can understand why people wouldn't be happy with you. Mm-hmm. And um, you're not taught about a lot of the, the reasons perhaps why people were angry, um, but just that it was the Mormonism itself that, mm-hmm. and you're taught that you know, that you'll be persecuted for practicing your faith or for believing in God. And um, so that's an also an interesting facet to me of Mormonism, where even though in Utah, <laughs> not only are you not persecuted, you have a lot of privilege for being Mormon. Right. And um, that still that mentality is there of like, I may be persecuted for this religious belief I have, And that makes it really hard to see that, like, no, I'm actually frustrated with you for social justice reasons. I'm frustrated with you for political reasons and for the way in which this social group is affecting the politics or, you know, human rights here. Mm -hmm. Not, I I don't care about, you know, what you do in your house or your prayers or your beliefs in God. But, and, and so it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic, I think, of in those situations, at least when I've spoken up, the perception is, you're persecuting us rather than, no, you can't seem to see that you're insisting that we all practice in your religion. That's not persecution to say, I don't want to practice what you are um, saying is an okay thing to do to push into a public arena. And so definitely, I think that it's, it's, it's something that you can kind of get used to culturally or you learn how to adapt to. And I think especially for you, I know a lot of my non-Mormon friends Mormon or non-Mormon, I mean, I think that you have to, when you're growing up in this kind of environment, you have to learn how to navigate the politics of it. And it's so tricky. It's very tricky. Yes. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Um, You know, and something that you said, there is, there can be quite a bit of social and social backlash for leaving Mm-hmm. Mormon church because of how the religion can, you know, seep into the, the social world. So I'm curious, Annie, about, you know, when did, um, you know, when did doubts start to creep up for you? When did you start to, you know, question this faith for you, for yourself? 
Well, oh, and I was starting to explain the household that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a kind of earthy quality there. And um, I spent a lot of time in nature and a lot of time outdoors. And um, my dad um, left Mormonism when I was in about eighth grade. And that was really something for me. And I could see how it created a divide in our family. And it was something my parents thought about. And my mom's super conservative Mormon and they're still married. I don't know. I'm not, I've learned to not even try and figure that one out, but, um, but my dad left and for a little while he was very anti-Mormon and I can understand that now um, because of the challenges that poses. And, um, and now he's come to a place of, of acceptance. There are definitely still things he gets frustrated about. And I think being in Utah and being married to my mom, he's had to, adapt to a lot of things and accept a lot of things and just focus on what works. But I had that influence. Um, and I stayed Mormon. Um, but there was this something that shifted when my dad left. And then my younger brother um, never really was into it. Um, and he, ha- he really struggled with it, openly struggled with it and defied it when he was in high school. And as soon as he was out of high school, he left the state and lived somewhere else and um, just really needed to get out of it. And, um, and then my older brother went on a Mormon mission. Um, and my older brother is uh, on the autism spectrum. He's been diagnosed with Asperger's. And so I had a lot of concerns about him going on a mission, mm-hmm. which is where you go for two years to um, often a foreign country. And for my brother, that was Colombia. Mm. and um and you're partnered up with other missionaries and you go around trying to teach people about mormonism and convert them to mormonism and baptize them and um anyway he went on his mission and then when he came back he immediately left the church and um so that was really interesting for me too that that experience didn't it pushed him out it it, it really was a a and he told me later that he was just waiting to finish his mission and knowing he was going to mm-hmm. leave. And I think it was a good experience for him to travel and to go to mm-hmm. Columbia. And I think that was valuable for him. So I had these little experiences. Um, and then I, you know, I had certain friends who left and I always had certain problems with it and certain things that as Mormons joke about, but is true that I put in the box, you know, that I were like, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I'll put that in the box of things that God knows that I don't know or whatever, you know. And so I've never heard that before because I'm not in, you know, I'm not, not yeah, I've just never not had there. to have a box. So Yeah, oh yeah, there's a box of things you don't know what to do with. And um for me polygamy was such a big that was took up a lot of space in that box. Like the teachings about it and just like and I had a lot of challenges with marriage and a lot of challenges with the traditional gender roles and what was expected of women in the church. And I, so I always had problems with it. And I was always the person at church who was like challenging things. And oddly enough, I was often asked to be a teacher in Sunday school. And so I had to sit with a lot of these things and try and find my own understanding of them. And I even openly in classes would say, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm not going to talk about it. Like, I don't know what to say about it. I don't know how to be okay with this. I don't know. I can't, I don't have a belief in it or an understanding of it. So I can't definitely can't share that with you. And, um, and so I always was actively questioning and always actively looking at 
these beliefs and I feel like I am a very intentional person. And so I wanted to, I, I wanted to actively be in alignment with what I was doing, all the things I was doing and do it to the best I could. Yeah. And I have a question about that. You know, when you felt like you were um, putting a lot of things in the box, as you say, or questioning the practices, did you feel, did you ever feel like you were like bad at your faith or that, that somehow was um, like, 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 I'm curious if you were feeling like you somehow were doing it wrong or you weren't getting it, or if you were feeling kind of empowered in those questions. That's an interesting question. It felt scary. Mm. I think I had a belief for some reason, and I don't totally know why, I always had a belief in my own connection to truth. And I didn't really separate that. In Mormonism, you're taught that that's, that's called the spirit, like that when you're feeling that you can have impressions from the spirit and that speaks truth to you. And that could be like a warm, fuzzy feeling or tingles up your spine or just a, a kind of an inner knowing, which now I think about more like intuition and just like, I think about it actually more in terms of sensitivity of just like the way that my body can know things and, and understand things and, and know what's, what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And um so I did always have a sense of being guided and, um, and having a connection to my own truth and having really powerful experiences of struggling with something and, and coming to an epiphany about it, coming to an understanding about it. And so I can actively remember struggling with things like, is it okay for me to get an education? Like, and, and like, I don't, I don't want to have kids right now. I want to get my master's degree. And is that okay? and like really struggling with it. So not particularly feeling like a bad Mormon, but more like, am I a bad person? Am I mm. like, am I doing this wrong? And how can I be okay with this? And really struggling through that and coming to my own epiphanies about it and my own understanding about it and, and sharing that publicly. I can remember sharing publicly at church, just like feminist viewpoints and like mm -hmm. and it's funny to me at the time I didn't think about it as feminism but like mm -hmm. how I understood that as an okay thing to do as a Mormon and and as a person for me to focus on getting my education and 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 it wasn't until like I, so I always had these problems and things that didn't feel quite right but I felt like I was I always felt like I was moving towards something like there was some kind of alignment that I was getting to and challenges I was working through and and then being highly sensitive and I have very very sensitive body I had a lot of health issues too I had a lot of autoimmune conditions and I have scoliosis I was literally physically out of alignment and and I had um vulvar vestibulitis which uh, is just basically means a mysteriously inflamed vulva and so I couldn't, I physically couldn't have sex. And I had a lot of, uh, I mean, there were so many ways in which my body lined up with the things that I was being taught. And I had a fear of my own body. I had a fear of feeling what I was feeling. I had a fear of, you know, literally of my vagina, of having children, of all of these power issues. I didn't, that my body knew and I knew at a level that I couldn't see consciously. And so for me, that was more of my focus of like, how can I be healthy? How can I be a healthy person? How can I learn how to live in a way that works for me? Um, and so then for me, you know, I had all these little things and then 
it was when I had a year outside of Utah and I was married. I was married in the church and I um, had been married for about five years Mm -hmm. and it was very unsatisfying. And we never had sex because of my vulvar vestibulitis amongst (laughs) other challenges. Um, (laughs) And so I was in this place of like, I'm on the surface, I'm doing all the things I should do, but inside I just felt getting farther and farther away from myself, disconnected from this thing that had been guiding me, whatever that was, that sense of truth and intuition. And, um, and then came to a place where I decided I wanted to study hypnosis. And I had graduated with my master's degree and had all of this understanding of family systems and relationships and trying to work with that. And, and I just felt for the first time in a long time, that drive again, that, that pushing me towards studying hypnosis. And hypnosis is very much a somatic practice of listening to and working with the body and getting into this altered state where you are not analyzing things, you're experiencing things. Mm-hmm. And, and that just opened up a whole world for me. And also the class that I was studying with actually embodied all of the things that I had been taught about my whole life about how I should feel at church, but never felt at church. And here I was in this room full of people after a week, feeling more unconditional love and understanding and support of who I was as a person than I'd ever felt in my whole life. And so that's really profound. Yeah. And they really embodied unconditional love. They embodied all of these things that I've been taught were Christ-like qualities. And, and I, and I, a lot of things clicked into place. And at that moment for me, like I said, I have just a very strong connection to integrity. And I'm not saying that other people don't, but for me, like I just, have, I guess what I'd say is I have a very low tolerance for anything being out of alignment. And so I knew I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what that means for the rest of my life, but I just know I can't do this anymore. And I know that I'm not in integrity to do this. And so I left the church and I got divorced and did a lot of things all at once. And, um, and, and it was a really challenging time, but also a really liberating time for me where I, I feel like I, I birthed myself and I went through this mm. process of questioning everything that I had been taking for granted and coming to experience the world that all of the wisdom I came to was through direct experience. And I, and I realized that is so essential to me. I need to... Now I have the word um, uh, Gnostic, you know, that, mm. that I feel like spiritually for me, I need to know things. I need to experience things. And I can remember even being at church and saying things like that. The where, like, I remember one of my favorite scriptures was about Peter walking on the water. And I remember thinking, why don't we learn how to walk on water? <laughs> this like what are we doing sitting in these pews like talking about this stuff and focusing on not drinking coffee like and and I remember maybe if you had the coffee you would have walked on the water (laughs) just kidding (laughs) but like and I started to and it it, it just it was really interesting to me because Mormonism is kind of mystical that way there is some mysticism but not in practice and so I started to open up to, you know, and of course being in a class of people studying hypnosis, that's when, you know, chakras and, and, and Eastern philosophies. And I'd already been a little bit interested in them, but I just was in a bubble. I just didn't know how to access this information. And then it started to flood in and I started to 
explore all of these things a little bit more. And, um, and also it was a time of, independence that was scary, but also, as I said, really liberating, where my family had a really hard time with it. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was very isolated at that time by choice. And also, because anytime I would try and talk to my family, it wasn't them trying to understand me. It was, well, you need to pray about this, or you need to come back to church, or you need to, you're doing something scary or wrong or bad. And so I didn't, I couldn't, you know, talk to them about it. And you know, that was a piece, sorry to interrupt, but that was oh, yeah. a piece that I found really interesting earlier where you said you didn't feel, you know, like there was something wrong with the faith or you were doing the faith wrong. You just felt like you were a bad person, mm-hmm. you know, for, for questioning things. And it, it, it kind of sounds like that might be where your family was coming from too. It's like, yeah. oh, Annie's become this bad person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need to bring her back in. Yes. And that is one of the challenges with these belief systems. It's like, and I knew that, like I knew yeah. that because I had seen, I was on the inside. I knew the way that people who left were talked about and mm-hmm. I didn't have, and, and I didn't have the perspective at, at the time when I was in it of like why someone would leave. Right. And even though obviously I had lots of non-Mormon friends and I personally did not have a problem with it. The problem that I had was how can I belong now? How do I belong? And how can you accept me? And, and I think that was my problem as well as their problem. And I didn't want to belong with them anymore. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to be, I think especially as a highly sensitive person who there can be perfectionism tendencies and other focused tendencies, I wanted to feel like they thought I was doing the right thing. I wanted to feel like they thought I was a good person. And so that was also hard for me to know that like, no, I'm a sinner in your eyes. I'm doing bad things. I'm doing wrong things. Not just I'm doing different things, but I'm specifically doing evil, bad things. And, and that is what you're taught when you're in it is that, you know, the devil is cunning and tempting and moves in subtle ways and like, kind of like, like it's a cold you're trying not to catch of, of leaving mm-hmm. Mormonism, you know, like that you've got to keep your immune system robust. And, mm-hmm. and there isn't a way in which you cannot be Mormon and be an okay person. And that people who aren't Mormon, who've never known about the faith are innocent because they've never known, but people who've known and left should know better, you know, that there's mm-hmm. like this sense of like, you have the truth and you're casting it aside and you're choosing evil things because you're weak and you're tempted and there's no other there's no other version of that story there's no version of actually i'm like following through on my own um integrity to myself this isn't at all about i'm too tempted to do evil things and and even for me i didn't even drink alcohol for a little while after i'd left or or caffeine or anything like that like well, and I sometimes think, at least from being on the outside and kind of listening to Mormon friends and family talk about those who have left, that it does seem like, oh, they were enticed by, you mm-hmm. know, these things that were not allowed to do. You know, they were enticed by strong drink. They were enticed mm-hmm. by, yeah. you know, sex or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that, especially for us highly sensitive people, that's, I mean, that's, that's rarely the, 
the attraction when we're leaving something that's harmful to us. Right. The, the attraction is to feel okay in our bodies. The mm-hmm. attraction is, like you said, to feel in integrity. I see that. I mean, I actually say that as a highly sensitive person thing, that, that mm-hmm. being out of integrity can just throw the whole system mm-hmm. out of whack, you know, out of yeah. whack. Rather. Yeah. 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 And so, um, and so then when you, you know, you left, um, and what I kind of hear you saying is I, I didn't belong and I didn't want to belong anymore, but I wanted there to be a place for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that, that actually was something that I experienced a lot and I still experience a lot because I grew up mm-hmm. feeling like the black sheep everywhere, not only um, in in friend circles or as a non-Mormon, but kind of in my family too. And and the sense of like, I don't belong here. You know, I, I don't have, feel that sense of belonging, but I, I think there's a place for me. Like, where is the place? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And that was an interesting thing for me. So like when I left Mormonism, I, it was just like cold turkey. I was like, I am... I can't do this anymore. And it was almost like my body was just ready to be free. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that's how I am with a lot of decisions where I'll keep working at something, working at something, and I'll know something's not quite right. And then all of a sudden when it clicks, it clicks. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. See you later. Like, yeah. and, and this is, I'm, yeah. I'm ready to move on to the next thing. And so for me, um, I won't explain all the backstory to it, but at the time I was living in New Mexico And, um, so I stayed in New Mexico for longer than I anticipated. And then I moved to New York city. And so I didn't go back to Utah and I didn't, um, I just, I literally just stopped. I didn't, I didn't reintegrate myself. There was no reintegration. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know if I ever would, I didn't even think about trying to, I just thought, all right, I'm out now. Like there's no space for me there. I'm out. And I still had contact with my family, but it was definitely at a distance and we didn't talk about like personal things. Um, And I would visit sometimes on holidays, but it was always hard and Mm -hmm. weird and, and a little bit like polite. And, uh, (laughs) and it was really sad for me because, and I remember feeling like this grief that I couldn't do it. Like there was a part of me that wished I could just do it and seeing my friends and family following the path, following the, like the fairy tale of like, you get married and you have kids and you get a house and you, you have all these friends and neighbors who love you and it's great and fuzzy and wonderful and seeing everybody else doing that. And there was a part of me that just felt like so much loss. Like, I wish I could do that just even so I could belong with these people that I love so much and that I grew up with. And that I think are great people, period. Like I, I love my cousins, like I said, on my mom's side of the family, particularly close to them and, and feeling a lot of loss. And even like we have our mutual friends, there Mm -hmm. were friends in that group who I was really close to that have now left. And I think, you know who I'm talking about, Um, Mm -hmm. but that at the time hadn't, and that was also weird. And it was just kind of like how to, how to be me and allow them to be them. And so the way I dealt with that was just by not being there and just physically not being there. And I did a lot of important things in New York and really came into my own space, but then was pulled back to Utah. Like I just, I couldn't, it was the hell out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it surprised the hell out of everybody. Everyone was like New York city to you. What? You know, and then I saw, you know, and, and I, I mean, I kind of witnessed from afar, 
you know, you were in New York and you were kind of, kind of doing these really cool things. And um, we weren't in a lot of communication then, but it was like, I was in communication through our mutual friends kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then I started witnessing, you know, you moved back to Utah and I started witnessing you getting, uh, well, you know, you just said that you had to be really polite. Like I witnessed you getting really impolite. Yeah. Uh, um, And I like, just so you know, I was like cheering you in the background. Like every time you posted some like vibrant uh, you know, truth on Facebook, I was just, you know, spinning in my chair with my fists in the air, you know, <laughs> and going, man, she's brave. Cause that is hard to do, you know? So, so I'm curious about that transition between, you know, kind of dealing with that grief and, and kind of swimming in that polite place um, and getting to the point where you can say, this was my experience of damage yeah. in this space that is so healing for, for all of you. Well, that was a really profound realization for me was that like one thing that really pulled me back was my um, sister gave birth to the, you know, my first nephew mm-hmm. and um that just oh that gutted me i i saw this and i didn't expect it and i i came back to utah and i visited her when she had given birth and my sister and i were always really close growing up and and she's still mormon and i am obviously not and 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 at the time I mean, there's so much, like I said, Mormonism encompasses so much of life and there's so much even from the time a baby is born that's mm-hmm. about Mormonism and like that trajectory and that path. And it it was simultaneously this beautiful experience as anybody, you know, and as mm-hmm. I know, you know, like I now have my own son, but that connection that's there when it's blood, I, it it just overtook me just the kind of immediate love and connection was there and the attachment that was there and then I was immediately also flooded with so much pain of like how can I be a part of this kid's life because I had been so detached from my family as the only way that I knew how to like kind of live after that and so it made me have to look at everything of like how can I be in this kid's life I can't not and I don't know what to do about that. And so I really had to sit with all these things that I had just literally stopped thinking about and stopped dealing with. And that includes concepts of God and spirituality. Like I had literally just stopped. I was just like, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know. Like whenever it was like blank slate, whenever those topics would come up, I was like, hmm, cool. God, you have a thought about God. Interesting. And I didn't, nothing was there. I had no opinion about it. I wasn't like for sure like, well, I just was like, and, and I think at that time too, I really had to understand, and this is a whole other conversation, capitalism and, mm-hmm. and especially how that relates to conversations about religion and God. And, mm-hmm. and I had to understand the psychology of wanting religion and wanting yes. that practice and wanting a cult and wanting, because I, yes. after I left Mormonism, there were other groups that I was a part of that I had that urge for. I had, I was yes. like, kind of like, please be a cult, please be someplace where we can all follow the same rules and, 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 and feeling that urge in me. And, and so I had to understand that. I just had to understand it psychologically and politically and socially. And, and I hadn't really ever 
I hadn't come back to it personally. I hadn't come back to my own personal sense of spirituality or what I felt there. And so when my nephew was born, that started to pull me back to Utah and, and, and I came, it was a really interesting realization, which is going to sound so obvious and duh, but at the time it was like, (laughs) I was like, Oh, the way that I make his life different than mine is by simply being in it. Like I just need to be in his life. That's it. I don't have to like have a, you know, protest outside my sister's house or have a sign or wear a t-shirt or like say anything. I just need to be me living my life the way that I live it and be in his. And, um, and that was easier said than done at that time, even. And and then moving back to Utah, even when I first moved back, you know, there was a time where I was at my parents' house and that was hard, but it was, it was good hard. I needed to see how hard it was. And actually with my adult eyes, see how I was raised and see why I had the problems I had. And then I lived in the mountains for a while. I was like, I am a hermit. And like, if I'm going to be in Utah, this is the only way I can do it. And then slowly I started to integrate myself a little bit more socially and find people that I related to. And, um, and it was a, it was a, it was an interesting challenge. Like you said, the, the posts that I started sharing, but what I realized was I don't have to fight with people about these things. And I think that's actually something we do wrong is we try to have a logical argument rather than speak, bring ourselves into the room that I'm just speaking from my experience. I, you can't argue with me that this caused me pain. You can't argue with me that this didn't work for me. You can't argue with me that I did pray my eyeballs out and Mm -hmm. still had the struggles I had. Like, and so let's make this personal because I think that's one of the things that we avoid doing is like making space for our, for each other as people. Yeah. And this is something that um, Annie and I were talking about before we hit the record button and I was kind of like, dang it, we got it <laughs> recording. But, but is this, this way that, um, you know, we're, we're here talking about a specific, we're talking about Annie's story within a specific fate today. We're not, we're not trying to um, talk badly about, uh, all of Mormons and all of Mormonism, nothing like that. Sure, We're talking right. about Annie's experience within this. And I, agree, I agree with you. I think that a lot of times, um, and I can say this from, from my perspective growing up in circles in Utah that were then very anti-Mormon mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's this, oh, the Mormons and the Mormons. And it's like, and I started having a really hard time with that because I love, I love, some people who are Mormon, sure. you know, that you're obviously, and, and it's like, that's not, that, that's not going to solve anything. And that's not the way that we actually build connection and, um, and use empathy to, to do that. Well, and that's one thing that I, I really had to sit with, cause there were times I just wanted to rage, like oh, uh, because of the pain that I had and seeing, and especially as a therapist and starting to work as a therapist here and seeing the suicide rate of like gay Mormon kids and yeah. like all these numbers that I was like, you need to see these, there needs to be change. There needs to be social change. And it was really interesting for me to realize and to find a way to be able to say, And to try and make those distinctions of, I love you as a person. I love who you are. And I don't have to understand why you participate in Mormonism, but I am going to express the problems that result from these specific actions. I'm not going to just sidestep these things, but also 
what I'm saying is not to attack as a person or I can't, I, I don't think it's possible for any person to attack anyone else's spiritual beliefs. Like actual sense of spirituality is yours and it's personal. And I think it has to be that way. So, but to, to see the, the social ramifications of a group of people and what they're doing. And so that is a hard thing because when I would get so mad about things, I would want to just say, can't you see how these practices are problematic? And I'd want to just, you know, point out and pick apart these things. And I learned that nobody's listening to me when I do that. Nobody is hearing me because that threatens too much. Mm -hmm. But if I can say, this has been hard for me, I don't know what to do with this. I don't like, here's where I am. And, and as a person and make it really personal and keep being me, keep being the, the person in the room yeah. who's, who's, who's sharing their experience rather than a person with a picket sign, you know, a person with something that's generalized and threatening, but someone who's actually just revealing a wound and, um, and, and offering saying, you know, here's this wound, what can we do? Not yeah, here's absolutely. this wound and you are a bad person and you caused it. Um, right. but, but isn't it interesting? I mean, you just said that, um, isn't it interesting, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, when you weren't able to do things right, you feel felt like a bad person. And so I, I'm kind of hypothesizing here, maybe as some of those personal statements that you, um, you know, created, um, maybe it made them feel like they were bad people or, you mm -hmm. know, or something like that, if that's kind of baked into Definitely. That space, but I, I think it's important to note, and we were talking about this earlier before we started recording that these are not problems that have just started. No. You know, these, these problems that come from um, any type of really strict faith or really strict social rules, that, that's never going to, to serve everybody. And that's not going to necessarily serve everybody who's born into that, that place, especially those of us who are sensitive or um, have needs that are outside of those social rules. And so I, I really like, you know, I was, like I said, I was cheering you because I, I, we really need to talk about these things, mm -hmm. you know, and like you said, you said before we recorded, like, they're not going away. No. Mm -mm. Right. You know, these, these problems are not going away. So, so why don't we talk about them? And I do think that they're hard things to talk about. And I think that's unfortunately what perpetuates these problems is that if you are someone who has left any organization or left anything, the temptation to just stay quiet and to say, there's no room for me. And because the only other option isn't just a fight. And, and I think that's what it feels like. And I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying everybody's going to be receptive. And I am, I did have some, uh, intense conversations with certain people and um, they didn't want to hear the things I was saying. They didn't want to see that there was pain from this organization that supports them in their life so much. And, mm -hmm. and I think we can all do better. And I think um, it's been now a really interesting process for me to personally have, you know, moved through all of that and, and to be with all of that and make space for all of that. And how do I belong in this way, in this space and being literally just being me where I am has been so hard. And it is a daily conundrum. And, and in some ways I am more comfortable being a hermit um, 
but there are times when I choose to say something and I choose to do something and I choose to be visible as I am. And, um, and I think I'm finding the balance with that of like part of my nature is, is to be more underground. And then part of my nature is to be an advocate and to, Mm -hmm. uh, to lead and to teach. And so it's been really interesting to me now. Um, these things aren't going away. And I think, especially with the internet, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much that we can communicate and share and look at. And I think we have to find a way to make space for people and understand why they do the things they do. And, and I've, I, I had to go through a time of being angry, angry about the pain mm-hmm. and the injustice. And now I, I'm trying, I wouldn't say I'm fully there, but I'm trying to see how Christianity as a whole or Mormonism and the, the, the beliefs within that serve people because I think there are a few different issues here. Like Mm -hmm. for me, just the practice didn't serve me. And also there were the social and political issues related to it and the family issues and and all these different layers. And I had to work through all of them. Mm -hmm. And now I think I'm at the place where I don't totally understand, but I have a guess that Christianity helps with the moving people towards transcendence or it gives people a way to see some kind of transcendence in their life and for me it's been so interesting i've been working with plant medicine um for the last i don't even know how many years now and the way that i came into that is so unexpected and it's it's kind of funny to me because especially in mormonism as with any conservative culture, plant medicine is drugs. You know, right. it is drugs. And drugs right. are bad. <laughs> right. Don't do drugs. <laughs> I, I went through there, uh, you know, and, and drugs are bad. And they're all, and in Mormonism, they're all in the same category, you know. Oh, drugs, tea. You can't even have, you know, chamomile tea. It's like. Yeah, drugs, yeah. tea, coffee, yeah. alcohol, sex porn, like all of these things are in the same box, you know, no, they're all bad. Don't do any of them along with murder. You know, they're all just, yeah. (laughs) Tea and murder, you know, right next. (laughs) And so it took a little while and I've, I went through so many of my own body practices and processes with my body to be able to relax and really feel okay about my body and not see it as bad or something to control or change or fix and, and in my work specifically, I work with horses um, as these very sensitive animals that are prey animals. And that really helped me understand my body even more and this nervous system and, and coming to alignment with that. And one of the most powerful tools I have ever, ever used is plant medicine. And, um, and, and so that also was like turning things on their head for me because Drugs always just had this weird seedy, you know, explanation to me in my youth. And just almost like, as soon as you do it, you're just pulled into this like alternate universe of vile evilness. And, and then to have my experience be so the opposite of like being in the desert, being with myself, a very spiritual experience using, um, you know, one of my personal favorites is peyote and and 
and being so embodied and so alive and feeling a sense of spirituality and guidance in a way that I still, you know, I don't have a good explanation for. And, and, and getting the personal revelations that I need about my life and feeling so physically well and so emotionally well and so spiritually well from doing that and like having it be such a personal and, and at times challenging process was so different than what I was taught about of like, I don't know, being out of control of your body and out of control of your life. And I'm not, obviously addiction is a real issue and I am not trying right. to make light of that. But as far as the intentional use of these drugs, of this plant medicine, um, it, it has been a really unexpected path for me to now to have grown up Mormon in Utah and now be back in Utah using plant medicine and studying to be a medicine person and encouraging other people to use plant medicine. So now I am, you know, basically helping Mormons use drugs. <laughs> so it's just such, I mean, it's such a, such a beautiful, you know, beautiful story and not, you know, it's not beautiful and that it's all wrapped up with a bow or anything like that. Um, you know, something I want to talk more about where you're at now with the plant medicine. Um, but something that kind of struck me is, you know, what we were talking about earlier, you know, people leaving faiths that don't serve them, people, you know, really searching for their own integrity and to find their own answers. That's not going away. And something that always um, kind of struck me um, being on the outside of Mormonism is I always thought that if somebody I knew left the church, they would like be like, Anna, like, you know, let's, let's chat, you know, like now, but, but what I, what I came to see that that never has happened by the way. Um, <laughs> but as I've come to see, you know, there, like you were saying earlier, there's the sense of being in something and then being out mm-hmm. of something. And there's not like a place mm-hmm. besides with yourself. Yeah. You know, really to kind of work work through that stuff. I think there are, there are teachers and there are help and things like that, but it can be, um, you know, like you shared kind of a challenging experience to have to answer all those questions for yourself that had been, um, previously provided for you. Yeah. And I've thought about this a lot and I, I I think I'm still sitting with, you know, I still haven't published a book and I still haven't done any of the things that I set out to do. And it was really, it's been really clear to me that I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And, um, and I do think probably at some point, and I have notes and I have a process of how to help move through these things. But I do think that is one of the hardest parts is, is like, if I leave this, where do I go? Where, what am I going to? Am I just on my own? And, um, and to be able to, and I know for me, especially being in Utah now, that, that was helpful for me to be around others who've left Mormonism, but it's still a weird space of like, we're the, we're the outsiders. And Where are we going? Yeah. yeah what are we? Yeah. yeah. What's what holding us here? Yeah. Like, what brings you together is what you're not. And yes. that, um, that, that is my, that is my childhood. In a, yeah. In a, yeah. Yeah. And I can only imagine growing up in that and not, and being that way for your whole life. Um, yeah. That's a story for another time, but there's so much that I could, that I could say. Yeah. 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 
And so for me now, I am looking at, and it's been funny for me because whenever I mention to people, well, I'm kind of turning into a spiritual leader. I'm kind of, I might have my own church. Sensitive leadership might lead to a spiritual practice, a church. A, and it's so funny. As soon as I say that, every single person I've said that to is, I'm in. I, I am, I'm a member. <laughs> and I think that is what I'm sitting with now is what my sense of spirituality looks like and how to have a spiritual practice or a church that is in service of the individual and being an individual together and not we feel safe with each other because we follow all these same rules, but we feel safe with each other because we've all gone through this process and we trust ourselves and we trust ourselves to be present and to meet our needs and to know what we need and to be able to cooperate and play with each other in a way that respects individuality. And that um, I feel like it's, it's interesting to me because it doesn't feel at all how church to me growing up felt. And so it's a, it's that part in and of itself has been hard for me to even use the word church or even looking at the word God and why do we say the word God and why, what is God and, and is God the same for everybody? Is God different? And having to ask myself these questions and, and one of the things that I saw was so interesting recently with a client that I'm still noodling on is he was being totally serious with me. And he said, I don't think I have a soul. And he, and he was comparing and talking about different people in his life and his family. And it really was interesting for me to look at and work with this model of sensitive leadership that I have and the hierarchy of needs and see that I think there are a lot of us that really struggle with there's a blank space where you have something like there is something I don't like you're having a different experience than I'm having and that doesn't have to be wrong, but it's just not what I'm doing. And, and to see that there probably are some people who, you know, and semantics are important and I'm not tied into the word soul particularly, but that I think hardy people do tend to talk about their soul and that within starting within the physiological, they have a little bit of the transcendent that they, that's like a magnet drawing them up to the bigger sense of transcendence, sort of like yin and yang. And I think for highly sensitive people, we are the soul, we are the transcendent, and we have a little bit of the self in us that's drawing us down to the physiological. And so for me, I feel like that is the, the thing I'm faced with right now is developing a, a, my own spiritual practice on strengthening and developing the self and um, how to bring the transcendent as a person down into the physiological, not just for others, but for yourself. Right. For right. And, and I think for me, in my, when I started out my work, it was like sensitive leadership and we all need, we all need what you're called to and helping people work through that. And, um, but then also what's in this for me and like, how, how am I myself? How am I my own and how do I enjoy myself? How do I find relief within myself? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I feel like that is something that I, 
I have, I still have a lot of question marks about, but, mm-hmm. but the, the, the thing that's been really helpful for me, because I used to have a hard time when people would say the word God, because to me, a lot of times I felt like they meant capitalism and they didn't mm-hmm. know that's what they meant. And so then we were having a very difficult conversation and, you know, God can be elements of power and, mm-hmm. and intuition and sensitivity and feeling, but the most useful definition for God that I've found is the um, personal relationship that is necessarily personal that each person has with their being and their belonging, that Mm -hmm. wherever you are in the world, whoever you are, that includes your genes, your family, your life experiences, all of the things that have allowed you to be exactly who you are. And that can include synchronicities that are inexplicable. That can include feeling guided and called in certain ways. And that can also include pain and trauma and like the difficult stuff you've gone through that God is necessarily personal and God is the word we use for the thing that doesn't have any other word that Mm -hmm. describes our relationship to how we exist Mm -hmm. personally, how we personally exist, not how we exist as humans, but how I, Annie, am sitting here in this chair at this exact time only God knows, you know, that's, that's when you use that word. And, and so how to bring the self into that practice of, um, of existing, of, of really existing, because I think so many highly sensitive people like my client, he was just like, he was trying to figure out the soul thing because he didn't feel like he was living his life. He felt like he was watching and waiting his life. And, and so I, I think that's what I'm, working with now. And I think all of the things that I've gone through have brought me to this place. And, and I, um, I'm excited and it's also comical and, um, and, and I feel one of the most profound things for me has been the birth of my son. And of course I'm going to cry. Yeah. knowing that he exists and seeing his existence every day and the way that it helps make me so present with everything in a way that I've been working with for so long and have done in the past, but not to this degree. And the spaciousness and the capacity that I have to accept things. And, um, and seeing how much I want him to understand the beauty of his existence in a very literal sense and how easy it is for me to see. And, and even just my own personal experiences with him even coming to be and um, coming to be pregnant and then birthing him and, and everything surrounding his birth that like, I, it, it's been such a full circle experience of actually really, connecting with stories I grew up with about Mary and Jesus and like, not that I'm saying my son is the savior of the world, but like, (laughs) but I think that's kind of the point. It's like, Mm. we're all Mary and we're all Jesus. And like how, how, like those desires within us to belong in a way that brings relief are human and natural and healthy. And that I think, especially those who feel like outsiders and who feel like they've been cast off and who feel like they've had to leave over and over again and that nothing works for them, 
that there is a way to belong and that we need that personally as well as culturally and socially. And um, so I think it's, it's such a big thing, but I think when it really comes down to it for me with spirituality, it's funny to me to see how specific and literal and straightforward it is and relieving and not so mysterious as I felt for so long. Absolutely. You know, and that's just so beautiful, everything you just said there and something that it reminded me of when you were talking about um, kind of the, the difference between service and the self, you know, when am I serving? Is spirituality about serving or is it about the self? And, you know, something that my, one of my yoga teachers, he's a yoga philosopher said and, and brought my attention to in, in the yoga sutras, at least it, they're very clear that, that there is no other, there is just you mm-hmm. and everything you do is around, you know, bringing in more joy and more sustained joy. And so, yeah, maybe you serve others, but that's because it brings you joy. Yeah. Because you're trying to get somewhere. It's because you're, you know, you're working on that sense of, uh, you know, of everything that you have in, in, in here within you and, and trying to make that a, a, a more joyful and integrated space. Amen, so, sister. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess, you know, I think we've been talking for quite a while, so I think we're going to have to um, to wrap this to wrap this up. But um, Annie, I'm just so grateful for you being here and sharing this story. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, it can be helpful for those of you out there who have um, left faiths or, um, you know, had, had harm done to you in, in spaces that just really weren't built for you. And, and I hope that it can shed some light on the fact that there is space, like Annie said, there is space and belonging for you out there. Um, and there are spaces like Annie is building um, a little uh, church coming up. Um, and there's the, the, uh, the refuge for sacred rebellion um, over in my space. So there are, there are places for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Annie um, has a, a couple of offerings that I want to just mention here. Um, Annie is doing her anytime WhatsApp work. Um, and I believe that works a little bit like, um, Uh, kind of like the Talkspace app. Is that correct, Annie? So that is something I'm going to have her talk to you a little bit about, and I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to that. Um, And then she's also got this really great sensitive leadership book. And Annie, I'd love if you can talk a little bit about both of those. Yes. um, I find that for a lot of highly sensitive people, the most tricky thing to do is to start. And so there's a lot of content for um, this process that I teach of sensitive leadership and being able to move through strengthening And so the little book of sensitive leadership is just a short PDF that gives you a way to start and to start working with some of these things and just to start taking action rather than continuing to spin. And within that, at the end of that, I do share um, uh, what I have been doing lately, which is through an app called WhatsApp, I um, work with people at their pace doing one-on-one work um, in a, a at a price and at a a speed that is really able to be tailored around the individual needs so that you can share whenever you want to and ask whatever questions you have. And then I can respond on a daily or weekly basis. And so um, 
You can also find a link to that if you go to, if you look for sensitive leadership on Instagram, you can see the link there. Um, and I will be obviously sharing more about that on, um, if you're on my mailing list and you can get on that at sensitiveleadership.com. Great. And I'll make sure to put uh, Annie's uh, website and all those links in the show notes. So thank you so much to Annie for being here again and uh, you know, take gentle care. Thank you so much, Anna. This was wonderful. Great. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. For information on everything shared here, including show notes and links, visit www.sensitivityuncensored.com forward slash soul of sensitivity.